Hello fellow readers, welcome back to Ravenclaw Readers with me Claire and Ella and Paul. This week we are looking at chapter 16 through the trap door and comparing it to chapter 8 of Alice in Wonderland. So Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is a classic Victorian children's tale first published in 1865 by Lewis Carroll and as most of you already know probably the story follows the bizarre adventures of young Alice after she falls down a rabbit hole and finds herself in the nonsense fantastical world of Wonderland. So before delving into what happens to Alice, let's find out what happens to Harry in this very eventful penultimate chapter. Ella, would you please take it away? Yeah, this is probably the longest summary. In fact, not even probably. This is definitely the longest summary I've ever done. Uh, so after sitting their end of year exams, Harry, Ron and Hermione are able to focus on the Philosopher's Stone again. And it suddenly occurs to Harry that it can't have been a coincidence that Hagrid managed to obtain an illegal dragon's egg right at the moment he really wanted one. Rushing down to Hagrid's cabin, Harry, Ron and Hermione are horrified to learn that Hagrid told the stranger in the hog's head how to get past Fluffy. Unable to tell Dumbledore, who had been summoned to London apparently on Ministry of Magic business, they make a plan to get the stone before Voldemort can. That evening, after everyone has turned in for the night, they head out under the invisibility cloak, reluctantly hexing poor Neville in order to get out of Gryffindor common room. At the trap door, Harry plays the wooden flute given to him by Hagrid to send Fluffy to sleep, and the three of them jump through the trap door straight into some devil's snare. Hermione rescues the boys by conjuring blue flames, and they all move on. The next task involves Harry catching a winged key on a broomstick, and the one after that falls to Ron to complete, who uses his wizard chess expertise to navigate the three of them across a giant chessboard. The only way for them to win is for Ron to sacrifice himself and be taken by the White Queen. Harry and Hermione are forced to progress to the next task without him, but are relieved to discover that the troll waiting for them has already been knocked unconscious. Moving on, they arrive at Snape's task, which involves a test of logic to work out which potion will allow its drinker to walk through the enchanted flames guarding the doorway. The correct bottle contains only enough potion for one person, so Harry insists on taking it himself and allowing Hermione to retreat back to Ron and the trapdoor. Walking through the door into the final chamber, Harry finds a sinister figure waiting for him. Who could it possibly be? Now, back to Alice. Alice comes across three anthropomorphised playing cards painting rose bushes, altering the roses from white to red. The cards fight amongst themselves until the Queen of Hearts arrives with her procession, at which point the cards throw themselves on the ground in reverence. Alice is quite puzzled at this action and finds the whole charade rather ridiculous, but she resolves to be polite. However, when the Queen questions Alice about the identity of the cards, Alice responds impertinently, How should I know? That's no business of mine. The Queen is suitably horrified and begins to call her famous line off with her head. Thankfully, the King quiets the situation by stating that Alice is only a child. The Queen then realises the gardener's failed attempts at painting the white roses red, and so she calls for their heads to roll too. Alice successfully hides the cards, and so they are spared that miserable fate, and Alice truly follows the Queen to play a game of croquet. The match proves to be completely chaotic, however, with flamingos acting as mallets and hedgehogs playing the role of the croquet balls. During the clamour of the Queen calling for various people to be decapitated, Alice spots the floating grin of the Cheshire Cat, 
who has a habit of appearing and disappearing one feature at a time. The king takes issue with the cat, but when he calls for its beheading, the executioner questions whether it is possible to decapitate something that is not attached to a body, as the cat currently consists of a head suspended in mid-air. The king and queen defer to Alice for counsel, who tells them that one of the queen's prisoners, a character known as the Duchess, is uh, the owner of the Cheshire cat and suggests to ask her for advice. Once the Duchess has been fetched and brought to the croquet grounds, though, the cat has entirely disappeared. So why this secondary text was chosen? So both this chapter and Alice in Wonderland involve our protagonists literally falling into a new world populated by strange beasts and peculiar obstacles. I wanted to think about how the rules of both these worlds function in these texts. Wonderland appears to have no rules whatsoever, so that the croquet game culminates in complete chaos. Compare this to the strategically compiled spells guarding the Philosopher's Stone, where planning and tactics are sorely needed. Chapter 8 of Alice in Wonderland also raises the issue of authority, whereby the Queen of Hearts appears to have status but displays no substantial leadership, and with the great authority of Hogwarts headmaster Albus Dumbledore gone from the school, the trio take it upon themselves to act opening with their exams it's like a very mundane way of starting what becomes a very fantastical chapter i know i was pretty surprised when rereading this i was like wait through the trap door starts with their exams i was um yeah because so much has to be crammed into this chapter and it at the second half of it is all spells and it's very uh, you know the obstacles that they have to overtake and the first half as you say it just seems Oh, they're just doing their their school tests, except it happens to be, you know, magic. But it all sounds very tedious and uh, very much like the exams that I remember taking at school myself. They sound annoying, some of the exams. So in Alice in Wonderland, um, Alice's adventures in Wonderland, all the events she sees don't make sense. Mm. So she doesn't know why um, these cards are painting the roses another color. And the whole premise is ridiculous. Um, similarly, uh, their exams are absolutely ridiculous. They make a pineapple dance across across a table <laughs> and make a mouse into a snuff box. These these are things out uh, you know which you could see in in Alice in Wonderland. These are the kind of crazy, ridiculous. What good is learning any of this? When's the last time you've ever seen a snuff box? Anyway, I did think that actually. You know that the. Well, Snuffbox is very appropriate to Alice in Wonderland in the Victorian period, actually. So, And I suppose when you you uh, place their exams against this great uh, um, event which might happen, Voldemort coming back, that there'll be no Hogwarts left. It is These silly little exams are ridiculous. And it's not until they descend the trapdoor that their learning actually makes sense. So Hermione mm. goes back to studying because there might be something useful um, to help them later on. Nothing about making pineapples dance or turning mice into snuff boxes, but magic which would have an immediate purpose. So it's almost as if going through the trap door is it's it's a trap. It's not a rabbit hole in which they descend to madness. They descend into it, and their learning sort of means something there. They put into practice what they they put into practice learned. what they. Mm. Because of course we see that directly because Hermione remembers what Professor Sprout tells her about Devil's Snare, yeah. and then is able with the prompting of Ron and Harry to conjure the flames which get rid of the devil's snare. Yeah, Hermione's blue flames strike again. It's coming very handy in this book. But above ground, when they're sitting under their tree, 
Mm. Much as the way uh, Alice in Wonderland starts. Oh, of course, Alice starts with falling asleep under the tree. Under the tree. Yeah. Harry, he, he says, I wish I knew what this means. He has this kind of, um, this feeling that there is something that he's forgotten. Something There's something out there lurking. Something uncanny. And he, he goes through this like list of ordering the world to try to find what it is. So Hagrid was the only one who ever sent him letters. Hagrid would never betray Dumbledore. Hagrid would never tell anyone how to get past Fluffy. There's this, he's going through it, the world logically until he finds the, that Cheshire cat grin, maybe. <laughs> you know, that, that thing hovering in the air, which is... Uh, which is terrifying for some reason. Descending into the trap doors, like descending into that chaos, you know, and they and they overcome it through their learning. And there's a logic to these puzzles. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons why the comparison to Alice in Wonderland is so interesting is because their descents are very different. Yeah. Going back to what you said about when Harry says, um, I wish I knew what this means. I got the impression that he was specifically talking about the pain in his scar. Do you think yeah. he meant it in a more general sense? No, I think, yeah, you're absolutely okay, right. He meant yeah. it as, I wish I knew what this means, this pain in the scar. But I mean, the pain in the scar does signify something huge. Yeah. Um, and that he wouldn't know what it means is is scary. We don't see this in this Alice chapter, but one of the ones I was tempted to parallel it with was one of the early chapters in, in Alice where she has to she has the little um, vial that says drink me and the little piece of um, food yeah. that says eat me because there's a lot of ideas of like consumption and different your bodies changing. Um, and it it reminds me of that in a way because in that instance, Alice's body is very much out of her control. It keeps growing huge and then really tiny. And with this, we see there is something quite scary about having that something in your body. And in Harry, it's his scar that you can't really understand. And and it's, it's something's happening with it and you can't control it. And I think that's quite that's quite terrifying. Harry also says, I'm not going over to the dark side. Oh, yeah. He has this big speech about there won't be a Hogwarts to get expelled from. And in order to do that, he has to confront not Snape and not Voldemort, Mm. but he must jump it. You know, he's the one who jumps into the into the trapdoor. He embraces that unknown quantity. Mm. I feel like Alice does as well. Mm. And I wonder if part of it's like the adaptability of children. Yeah. Yeah. But they deal with these crazy circumstances so well. This is nothing that they've experienced before. And in Alice's case, it's completely illogical and hard to follow. I mean, at least the descent through the trapdoor for Harry, Ron and Hermione has logical rules, even if it's quite a difficult situation. But they all handle it really well. Yeah, Mm. the crazy logic of uh, Wonderland seems to overwhelm Alice. Whilst Harry and the gang overcome <laughs> overcome what that dark place. I think by the time Alice is in the croquet grounds, this is chapter eight of Alice in Wonderland, which is a very short book, so it's it's more towards the the end of the book. She has had to reason with the fact that she is in this crazy world, so she is getting used to the insanity of it and she's kind of just going along with it there are a few times when she tries to bring her own societal rules that she's learned you know by being polite to the 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 queen but then she realizes these are just playing cards I don't need to be afraid of them I don't need to do anything ridiculous and she she's able to kind of take control of the situation herself and even towards the end of the chapter then the the queen and the king look to Alice for advice about Mm -hmm. What should we do with the Cheshire Cat? Whereas 
yeah, with Harry, Ron and Hermione, the, the, as Paul said, the logic that they take in from the rest of the magic world does serve them in a way that the logic of Alice's world doesn't necessarily help her. <laughs> Certainly not with the croquet game. No. <laughs> There's no mastering that beast. There is that one trial, though, which is the, the troll. Whose trial is that? Quirrell's. Yeah. That's the only trial that doesn't reset. So all of these trials are they're ma- what are they magic uh, incantations as we said there is um, a logic to them and you can work them out but i wonder if the the dark arts don't have that kind of logic and that in well in the instance of the troll the only thing you can do is is hit it mm-hmm. and there's something permanent about that violence that there isn't about a uh, even even ron's supposed death yes yes when ron has to sacrifice himself on the chessboard and he gets taken out by the stone arm of the white queen which is quite a terrifying image and this idea of this poor little 11 year old boy being dragged off completely unconscious um that's quite scary but like you were saying paul there they're not worried about him being dead i guess they figure out then that that must be professor mcgonagall's um transfiguration obstacle and I suppose you'd probably think that Professor McGonagall isn't going to kill anyone, even if they are after the Philosopher's Stone. Ron seems quite enthusiastic. <laughs> Ron is loving it. In sacrificing he is himself. in his element, this, guys. This is what chess is about. I wonder why. Uh, I wonder if that's why Hermione is not good at chess. She's not willing to sacrifice that thing. You know, she says. Um, she says to Harry, um, "Books and cleverness. There are more important things: friendship and bravery." I mean, Ron exhibits both of those in his sort of mm-hmm. sacrifice and i wonder if if hermione is not bad at chess for lack of being clever or smart but because she's unwilling to sacrifice pieces i think that's an interesting reading of hermione and it reminds me of in the christmas chapter we get to first see ron's expertise at chess and harry plays with with, is it with Seamus's chess set or something and he says that they have a real he has a real problem with it because the chess pieces in that set don't trust him whereas Ron's chess pieces he's had for years and it belonged to his family so they've developed a bond of trust with him and they don't argue back to them whereas the pieces in Harry's chess set would keep, keep telling him no I don't want to go there don't send me there don't do this um so for Ron uh, there is that that importance of of trust and of course when he has to take over here and guide Hermione and Harry and you know himself to win the game they have to put their trust in Ron just mm-hmm. as the pieces do and they they do and they don't question it <laughs> he's he's actually quite nice about it he's like listen guys don't be offended but neither of you are really good at chess and they're, and they're like we're not offended at all just tell us what to do like they're happy to step back and let him take control and Ron really rises to that task. I think he really in, enjoys it. He likes being useful. He likes knowing what to do. And as Paul said, he even seems to be very enthusiastic about the prospect of sacrificing himself. I guess it's a very noble thing to do. Whilst Hermione, it's completely believable that Hermione, after missing part of question 14b, would wait outside this teacher's room. She needs every piece. She needs everything. She mm. She doesn't want to let go when i was a child 
my parents used to give us 50 pence or something to buy a chocolate bar, me and my brother. My brother would go in and just grab like a Snickers or whatever. Snickers. And I'd be, more often than not, I'd come home, I'd come back with uh, with the 50 pence and give it back to my mom so I couldn't decide what to have. Mm. And there's this fear of making the wrong decision yeah. and it's better to make no decision at all and still have that 50 pence. I wasn't keeping the 50 pence, I gave it back to my mother. But I was petrified of, of making the wrong decision. You know, I wonder, does, is that... Is Hermione afraid of making mm. the wrong choice, getting the wrong answer? Yeah, yeah. Probably. But she also knows when she's not the right woman for the job That's and when she should ask. take a step back and let somebody else take over. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really lovely in this chapter is that we see all three of them get their chance to shine because that seems to be a task most suited to their own skill set. So, of course, we see Harry being able to fly to catch the winged key um and then ron with the wizard chess and hermione who solves the logic puzzle um to help harry know which potion he can drink so they all have their moment and they know when they're not suited to solving the task and they will let somebody else solve that the only thing that she argues with is that she's worried for harry's safety but she also knows you know it's it's the right thing to do in this situation and she allows him to to go on and she she returns back and it's, it is interesting that all the time we've seen Harry wanting to stand up to Snape and wanting to challenge him and not wanting to let Snape intimidate him. At this moment when push comes to shove, he does recognise, I know I can't really take on Snape, but maybe just being there will somehow, yeah, just buy time until Dumbledore comes back, which is quite a brave thing for another 11-year-old boy to do. Both chapters... Chapter 8 of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and the trapdoor end with um, sending for someone else. This idea, a lot in, in Alice and as we see in in the Harry Potter chapter as well, there does seem to be a lot of appeals to either authority and that never really seems to work. So they have to end up appealing to other people. So, for example, as, as you said, Harry appeals to Hermione to figure out the, the Snape's puzzle in the, with the little potions. And um, the, the king and the queen appeal to Alice and everyone's deferring to, to others. Um, but, but in the place where there should be authority in both the, the Alice text and the Harry text, it's it's lacking. And the closest we get to any authority figure that could make a difference in the Philosopher's Stone is Professor McGonagall. I cannot believe how Harry addresses her. So they realise that who they think is Snape is coming after the stone and, and Harry's like, okay, I have to tell Professor McGonagall. When he finds out that Dumbledore has gone to the Ministry because that's what McGonagall tells them, he just says... Look, said Harry, throwing caution to the wind. Professor, it's about the Philosopher's Stone. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't imagine Harry addressing Professor McGonagall going, look, listen to me here. And he, he really does try to appeal to her because he does see her as someone that he respects. But does Professor McGonagall kind of let them down? I guess she wouldn't assume that the children know as much as they do and that they're actually going to go after it. So maybe I'm being a bit unfair to McGonagall. But also maybe she just has so much belief in their the protective enchantments and how many there are. And she obviously would have had no idea that Hagrid would have told Quirrell how to get past Fluffy. So she probably thinks that even if they do know about the stone, then they're misinformed about it, which is probably why she doesn't 
react in the way they want her to. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, she doesn't realize just how much they have figured out and how much they know. And that, that these three 11-year-old children are the type of children to take responsibility upon themselves. Well, similarly, Neville doesn't understand. Mm. I mean, he acts mm. in, this, uh, in the same way McGonagall does, which is yes. to, the, to the best of their knowledge. So they're acting completely rationally. But from it, their perspective, from yes. their perspective, yeah. but it frustrates Harry and the gang. What are some other parallels? Well, I feel like one of the biggest ones was obviously the um, comparison of the descent through the trap door in this chapter and Alice going down the rabbit hole into Wonderland. But we've pretty much already discussed that, so I might just move straight on to my other one, which was um, the, the representations of kings and queens and games in these two, um, and. I thought that it was really interesting how sinister and powerful the pieces in Harry Potter came off compared to the ones in Alice in Wonderland, who would, on the surface of it, seem to have more overt power. And yet, the way they're depicted, you get a real sense of danger from Harry Potter and just like it's a complete farce and there's no real danger at all from Alice in Wonderland. So I'm thinking particularly of... um, the uh the white queen from harry potter who is just silent and faceless and the complete opposite of the queen of hearts but she is really powerful and dangerous because of that and all you see of her is just her smashing up pieces and dragging ron off and it's really intense and frightening compared to the queen of hearts who is you know ordering executions of everybody mm-hmm to the extent that it becomes, you're almost desensitized to it and you think, oh, this is just absolutely ridiculous. There's no real threat. And of course, Alice sees that as well. I love it when the queen's like, off with her head. And I'm just like, nonsense, this is not happening. Um, they sort of pretend they yeah. beheaded the three at the beginning as well. Yeah. So yeah. She says, have they been executed? And exactly. They call so back, yes. She has no real power at all. And it is such a contrast to how the queen is portrayed in Harry Potter. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I was surprised by the, the, the vivid chess game and the, the violence and the, the crumbling stone. It, it does, it seems much more um, permanent and despite it being magic chess pieces, more uh, more real mm. uh, than uh, the cards. I mean, both are, yeah, both are, are games, but I mean, like with, with a deck of cards, there is no one game to play. It's there's just fifty two cards and you can you can make up a game, but with chess there's only there is one game and the pieces facilitate that game. And it's very much you win or you die is the situation that yeah. Harry Ron and Hermione are facing. <laughs> it's a real threat. Even the thinking about just the base materials of both the cards and the chess pieces. So the cards are just these flimsy pieces of paper that can be torn. But the 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 chess pieces are, yeah, these great stone figures. And there's something ab- about stone, the, the kind of the, the towering figures of stone that's um I mean, even looking at something like Stonehenge and you you have these these ties to these great structures and, and, and things that have just last for hundreds of thousands of years very 
reminiscent of uh, some of like the great statues, for example, in in the real world, and also in um, other fantasy stories. Particularly, I'm thinking of like of Lord of the Rings. But there's lots of instances when they come across huge statues or crumbling statues, and you know it denotes the decay of an old world, and yet there's still these remnants. And it does speak of a an eerier, greater power than just a pack of playing cards. I had a, I had a friend uh, a few years ago who. He didn't so much like playing chess as the idea of playing chess. <laughs> he he'd read books on playing chess, and ch- chess is a very, you know, there's um there's an appeal to the game, which is there are openings, there are set rules, there are conventions in the game, and then the great players sort of exploit those conventions. They know the game inside out. The Queen of Hearts in in a card game doesn't really have that much power she seems yeah um but the queen in chess always has ultimate power of the board and that's why the queen is such a terrifying figure in chess that also seems to translate to alice in wonderland Mm. how the queen is the most powerful figure we also see that in alice in wonderland and how the king in chess is you know ultimately you have to defeat the king to win Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the king should by that logic be the most powerful piece and yet the king really can't do very much you can only move one square at a time and yeah. he has to be defended at all at all times and in the alice in wonderland chapter we see the same kind of um he's kind of yeah, overshadowed ineffectual and overshadowed by the queen by the queen who absolutely dominates him um and he does tend to just sort of fade into the background and that's very much similar in harry potter how it's the queen who is the really imposing presence and the one who causes all the damage and the king in the end is just forced to throw his crown at harry's feet she's still one of the more well the queens are still some of the most important cards yeah Yeah. absolutely it's the third under ace and king so yeah it is interesting that the cards would still have that kind of i mean is is a lot of that just to do with the fact that this was written under the reign of Queen Victoria? So who's the most powerful monarch in, in the kingdom? It's the, it's the queen. And of course, um, the, there was no king. It was just Prince Albert, just as today as we have Prince Philip. There's no, there is no king. Um, I guess that doesn't quite parallel with the cards. <laughs> so perhaps Lewis just chose to keep the king as the king, but really he's playing the role of a, of a, of a prince. I definitely read it that way as well. Is it significant that the king's argument about beheading the Cheshire Cat is anything with a head can be beheaded? <laughs> yes. Whilst the executioner, is it the knave, says oh, I think it is, yeah. he doesn't have a body, therefore he can't be beheaded. Mm-hmm. And it is not the instance that the body is invisible because Alice waits for the Cheshire Cat's ears to appear before she speaks so that it may be heard. Under that logic, <laughs> that the cat is not merely invisible, but no. is materializing. Yeah. And without ears, it can't hear. So the king's argument is this abstract. If something has a head it can't, and a life, <laughs> it can be de- beheaded. But the, in practice, the knave, that's not what the knave experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is Lewis Carroll perhaps getting at reductive or nonsensical arguments of philosophical logic here, where there's like two schools of thought or two philosophers trying to argue with one another. The way that you were framing it, Paul, makes it seem like the king is the theoretical scholar, saying, well, in theory, anything can, that, you know, can be beheaded. But then the knave is the executioner. He's the practical, the practical man. Yeah, he's like the one who has to carry this out. And he's saying, well, I can't do this in my practical day-to-day life, therefore it can't be done. <laughs> and then the queen says, well, if it's if it's not done, then everyone's dead. Yeah. 
what, what is the, where does that put her? But are, are we falling into the trap of trying to actually apply logic to Wonderland and ultimately that can't be done? That's the joy of reading mm. it. Yeah, that's why I think it's so in, it's such an enjoying, enjoying text because it does make you no. think about these things. And there is not necess- there's not necessarily answers. So it, it, it opens with a riddle, how is a raven like a writing desk? Which famously is not answered in the story. But there are um, so many people have suggested... I've, I've thought about it and suggested answers. Mm-hmm. That's where the joy of Alice in Wonderland uh, resides. Now, and the, the the joy in in Harry Potter is that these riddles do have answers, mm-hmm. and that they figure them out and they they move forward. Yes, because there's talking about ideas of logic and to think things through. Obviously, reminds reminds me of the the Snape obstacle, which is the last one where he has this little like riddle or a little poem that explains basically which potion to drink to go onward to, to to find the stone and then which potion to drink to go backwards but what what do you make of this do you think this is a good obstacle hermione seems pretty impressed by it yeah hermione says this is well she loves it. She yeah loves it. she says this is great um it's wizards magic. don't use logic mm. um they just use magic so this is actually a very difficult um test for a for a magician I think it's a good move, yeah. yeah. I think in the same way that Quirrell's test was also really good because it wasn't strictly a magical test. It yeah, was yeah. kind of a test of strength and cunning and stealth and, you know, the ability to think quickly about how you can overcome another living creature. Mm. Um, so I think the best protective enchantments will always be something which requires a different skill for each one. And this is definitely a good one in that sense. Especially if not very many wizards would know how to do a logic puzzle. Yeah, I mean, that's why the three wizards are needed to get through these these challenges. Yeah, I guess it also speaks a bit to Snape's mind and how he thinks and how he perceives things maybe differently than a lot of wizards and a lot of great wizards. So, But something that's often brought up about the tasks narratively they need to be done because that's how the story progresses but people have often said they're ridiculously easy to get through because three 11 year old kids can get through them do you think that's a fair criticism do you think that maybe um this doesn't really hold up to critique outside of oh it's a children's book so you know whatever or do you think there's a, a an internal logic huh, to what's going on they do seem tailored to the three kids. I mean, we it, we have st- established that Ron is good at chess, um, Harry is good at seeking, and that Hermione's wicked schmad is clever and logical. Mm. It's worth reinforcing the message of the whole story, really, isn't it? That the importance of friendship and teamwork and versatility in groups mm. and... Yeah, I mean, as Supporting Ron, each other. Yeah, because as Ron says, he says, of course we're coming with you, Harry. Um... And Harry's a bit taken aback by this. And it's quite nice to see that here because a similar thing will happen at the end of the sixth book when Harry decides I need to go out and defeat Voldemort and this is what I have to do. And again, Ron and Hermione say, of course we're coming with you. Like, don't be ridiculous. You know, at at the, I was just thinking at the beginning, the first trial, Harry says, light of fire. Hermione says, I have nothing to burn. Mm -hmm. And then Ron finds this absolutely ridiculous. Um, honestly, he <laughs> he's <says>. so incensed. <laughs> um, because he's 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 grown up in the magic world, mm. so it would make sense for him to magic something. Mm. Whilst uh, Hermione appeals to the logic of the world she grew up in, which is you need 
in order to start fire, you need wood. Where there's smoke, there's fire doesn't exist in the wizarding world. They can just <laughs> conjure smoke. So perhaps if Ron, if Hermione was lying on the chessboard dying and Ron he went... He doesn't die, it's no. all right, Paul. Ron, Ron is not dead, it's okay. Ron went into the, 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 the logic puzzle. His first thought would be, there must be a magic spell to counter out this. That's true, yeah. So that's why, you know, it's such a good trial. Because a wizard grown up in the wizarding world would think there must be a spell. The way to overcome this is through magic, not through mm. not through that kind of logic. That even speaks to uh, Snape's childhood, actually, as well. Because, well, we shall find out that his father was, in fact, a muggle. So he grew up kind of with one foot in the wizarding world and one foot in the muggle world, surrounded by muggles. And also fits in with J.K. Rowling emphasising throughout the whole series um, the value of having a muggle perspective or muggle heritage because it gives you a broader... Understanding. understanding and more avenues are open to you than thinking oh i can only solve this with magic because i can't you know could could draco malfoy have been able to solve a logic puzzle you never know he wouldn't have been able exactly to he would have, he would definitely have yeah. thought magic is superior there must be a magical way he would never have thought to lower himself to mm. a muggle lo- logic logic also challenge like yeah yeah one of the things that i wondered about this and we will kind we will see the one task remaining paul which is, of course, Tumbledore's in the next chapter. I have the feeling that that's really the, the big one. That's the one that everyone would struggle with. I'm just thinking more about um, uh, what we're talking about, Neville and McGonagall and, mm. and things like that. So what's frustrating about the game of croquet, it, it seems that the, the rules keep changing or the task at hand keeps changing. Once she has the flamingo, I'll set the hedgehog box away. And, <laughs> and, and equally, the... The game changes for Harry, you know, losing points doesn't matter anymore, can't you see? And what's frustrating about their interactions with McGonagall and Neville is that they're the croquet ball, which is walking away. They're, <laughs> it's a, they're playing a different game. Yeah. For Neville, it is only about points. He mentions you can't get any trouble, you can't make us any worse. And for McGonagall, it's, again, she threatens points. Doesn't she? I think she does. I think she does, yeah. Snape definitely does. They're playing a different game. I suppose what's infuriating for Alice is that the game keeps changing. (laughs) The objective keeps changing. Whilst at least with Harry, they have a firm objective which they can pursue. And that's the madness of Wonderland. So once the children figure out the the puzzle, Mm. like Harry says, oh, clearly we need to find the key that belongs in the door to get through to the next task and once they've that's clicked then they can pursue it and achieve that aim whereas Alice doesn't have that luxury when Harry pretends to be the the bloody baron to Peeves (laughs) he says the bloody baron has his reasons and that's enough for Peeves (laughs) Peeves does not want to play that game also we return to the power of music once again, yes, of course, to, as Dumbledore to told us in the beginning. the savage beast. Of the book, yeah. Well, I'd sort of noticed that um, despite like the dangers of having to go through the trap door, Harry is never forsaken by Ron and Hermione. They're really loyal friends who are going to stay with him and help him work out everything. Um, and then you look at Alice, who is all by herself in Wonderland, and even people who seem to be allies like the cheshire cat who sometimes advises her she can never quite trust him and he's never really her friend so i was just wondering whether 
Alice would have benefited on her journey through Wonderland had she had her Ron and Hermione with her. Well, it's easy for Ron and Hermione to to act with conviction when they have an end goal. That's true. Alice's end goal is... Is it even like a Dorothy situation where she's trying to get home? Like, no, not really. She doesn't really. She's just it. kind of taking it as it comes. The immediate problem is what she deals with. And then she just moves on to the next problem. Because, mm. yeah, it kind of falls to Alice where in Harry Potter they had to demonstrate all these different skill sets like courage and strength and the ability to think under pressure and things like that. Alice kind of has to take on all of that herself and have all of those skills in order to navigate her way through this completely nonsensical world that she's found herself in. I think if you were playing a game of football and it was 1-1 at 85 minutes, you would give it your all. You would, you know, you would make silly moves to just everything. You'd put everything up just to to win. That's what uh, Ron, Hermione and and, uh, Granger do. Um, mm. And I think Alice is the best given the circumstances. But there's nothing. Yeah, she's taking it she very well. She does very, very well. <laughs> I gotta considering say. Considering all things considered. <laughs> she descends. There is a logic, a strange and, and distorted logic of, of Wonderland, but mm. there, um, it is chaotic. She doesn't, she wants to be sort of grown up and she wants to be, um, you know, she appeals to this kind of grown up knowledge, but it doesn't resolve the chaos she doesn't overcome the chaos in the way that um, they do in Harry Potter, which is a point we sort of started with the beginning. I mean, she kind of has to set aside her knowledge and her logic and really just hone in on her instincts mm. and just know how to react to everything that happens to her without really thinking too deeply about it. Yeah, and maybe that's what Harry employs in the next chapter in a way, if memory serves me correctly. I, I did notice there was one aspect in this book where uh or in this chapter where harry does feel somewhat isolated from ron and hermione when his scar keeps paining him and he he knows that they both understand the threat of Voldemort and they're worried about him but it doesn't consume them in the way that it consumes harry he's always still having his nightmares and they're getting worse and he's getting this pain in his scar and that this is something that we see Harry continually struggle with. And I suppose it just kind of shows that Ron and Hermione always do their best and they're always extremely supportive. And that is not to in any way take away from that because they're so important to Harry and his journey and his whole arc through the seven books. But there's still always a bit of Harry that, that does feel inherently isolated from, from others. The scars is a reminder that it reminds us that mm. Harry is a little bit older. Yeah, he's a little bit more mature. You know, he does he he doesn't have he was his parents are right. He mentions that in this. Voldemort killed my parents. Mm. That he's he's not allowed to be a child in the way Ron and Hermione are sort of trying to enjoy the summer's day after their exams. And he has that feeling that something's not right. That there's some responsibility calling him which a child would put aside and, and not even realise. But he, there's something there lurking and he has to confront it. A cat may look at a king. So um, Alice says to, to the king when the king starts calling for the Cheshire cat's head to be headed, she says, a cat may look at a king. I read that somewhere, but I can't quite remember where. So it's an old proverb that um, means that um, those lowly, even peasants in society 
can have rights as a king or a nobleman would. And maybe that's what we see here in the, the children taking on this great adult responsibility. They're, they're acting in that, in that vein. And it's, it's interesting that Alice says that she's, she read it somewhere, but she can't remember. And it's like a proverb is something that you don't just see once, but you see many times so that it, it's almost alive in you. You almost just feel it in in yourself and I, I just thought that, that was like a really interesting it's like well, an instinctive thing almost it's a literalization of of the line it's a childish sort of reading of it like a cliche or a proverb is, is something that you've heard a million times mm. it doesn't necessarily we all fall back on these and you, you know the way we fall back on on these kind of cliches is not to acknowledge the individual nature of the thing at hand but to sort of say this proverb this um uh, this ready-made and mechanical phrase well thank you for listening readers and next week will be our final chapter chapter 17 of the philosopher's stone the man with two faces and we will be reading that in parallel with christopher marlowe's dr faustus and we will be looking at the opening scene scene one and the closing scene scene 14 from that play so join us then thank you very much bye bye bye, bye.